0: Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So we're beginning a new sermon series uh, on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to attempt to do two things today. First, we're going to kind of look at the theme of the sermon. What is Jesus trying to do? Uh, what's his purpose in preaching it? And then we're going to zoom in on these these beatitudes, these strange, paradoxical statements that Jasmine just read. So, what is Jesus doing with this with this sermon? Well, he's showing us a whole new way of being human. How do we know this? Well, in verse one, it says Jesus left the crowds, and he goes up a mountain with his disciples. The crowds were curious. The disciples were committed. They're the ones who had apprenticed themselves uh, to Jesus so that they could observe and imitate his way of life. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contrasts his followers, his apprentices, with two other groups of people. Uh, One is the heathens, the people who don't know God at all, and the other is the Pharisees and teachers of the law who were extremely religious, extremely devout, and who defined for most Jewish people what it meant to be a good, God-fearing, and moral person. And it's very interesting that Jesus does this, because most people believe that there are two different ways to live. You can be uh, religious, or you can be irreligious. You can be uh, a moralist, uh, a, a, rel- uh, a moralist, a legalist, or, or a relativist. You can conform to an external moral standard. Or you can trust your gut. You can trust your instincts. You can figure it out for yourself. And most people have been led to believe that these are your two options. But all throughout the sermon, Jesus is saying, no, no, no. My, My followers aren't like the irreligious people who don't know God. Uh, But they're not like the religious people either. There's something else entirely. There's there's religion, there's irreligion, and then there's the gospel. There's there's moralism and relativism, and then there's the gospel. There's conformity to the rules and self-determination, and there's the gospel. So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' repudiation of the life scripts that were handed by both secular and religious people. Jesus is saying, my my followers don't fit inside of these boxes. And neither of these boxes lead to abundant life. Neither of them lead to a life of radical, joyful, self-giving love. Jesus is showing us a whole new way to be human. Another way of saying it is that Jesus is creating a counterculture. There are two dominant cultures, two dominant worldviews. And Jesus says, we're going to rebel against both of them. Jesus is giving us a third way, a whole new way of being human. So what does that look like? Well, Jesus begins by describing this life through these these beatitudes, these eight enigmatic statements of blessing and promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Before we get too far in, let's make sure we understand what Jesus means by the word blessed. In our culture, Blessed tends to mean one of two things, either a, kind of a feeling of gratitude or some, some sort of divine verdict. You know, often we say that we're blessed uh, when we feel grateful for a good experience or, or a gift that we've received. And you see this on social media a lot. Amazing vacation, hashtag blessed. So grateful for an amazing night with two awesome friends, hashtag Blessed. The other way we use the word is to describe, you know, the, kind of this divine verdict, this idea that, you know, God is always choosing winners and losers, and our circumstances are the evidence either of God's blessing or of God's curse or neglect. So we look at someone who's in good health, who's comfortable, who's well healed, and we say, now they are blessed. God has been good to them. So we tend to use blessed either to describe a feeling, gratitude, or, or a divine verdict. That is not how Jesus uses the word. For Jesus, the key to being blessed is your posture. And there are certain postures, there are certain attitudes of the heart that lead to a robust and flourishing life. Now before we get into what these are, just a couple of observations. Number one is every beatitude is the exact opposite of a dominant value. Every beatitude is a reversal of what we expect. We think blessed are the confident and the self-assured, blessed are the carefree, blessed are the assertive, blessed are the respected and esteemed. Jesus says the exact opposite. And because of that, because Jesus turns conventional wisdom on its head, he forces us to rethink who's in God's kingdom. And it's often not who we expect. And finally, there are eight Beatitudes, but Jesus is not describing eight groups of people. He's describing one kind of person. Don't think of the Beatitudes like charms on a bracelet, think of them like links in a chain. They're all connected, they all hold together. And likewise, don't think of the eight different blessings. Think of a state of blessedness that flows naturally from these interconnected postures. It's a concatenation of postures. It's a concatenation of blessings. They all hold together. All right, let's dive in. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit is the on-ramp to the kingdom of God. It is the threshold to the blessed life. Who are the poor in spirit? They're the ones who recognize their need and trust in God to supply that need. There's no bragging. There's no pretense. The poor in spirit know that they have nothing with which to commend themselves. They come to God empty-handed, poor, And needy. The poor in spirit say, I can't believe Jesus loves me. Jesus frequently contrasts the poor in spirit with those who are confident in their own righteousness. And this second group has no need for God, they have no need for grace, they have no need for forgiveness. They're the middle class in spirit. They're always defending, justifying, and promoting themselves. Constantly comparing themselves favorably to others. The poor in spirit don't do this. They only compare themselves to a holy God. They stand at the mouth of the Grand Canyon in awe. Instead of saying, I'm so glad I'm not like that person or those people. They say, have mercy on me, O God a sinner the poor in spirit experience the blessing of god's kingdom not because they're special but because they're receptive to it because they know that they know that they're needy because they're desperate to receive help the first beatitude means that salvation is by grace through faith it's not something we earn the blessed life is received not achieved remember this is a posture it's not a work, but it's a posture that's emboldened by a God who sees you at your worst and still loves you. A God who still says, Come and follow me. I want to give you a brand new life. It's been my experience that those who who experience material poverty are often the most honest about their spiritual poverty. Not because they're any less moral or less pious than the rich, but perhaps because they're less morally pretentious. Since their physical needs are evident, they put less pressure on themselves to appear put together in other ways. This is why the poor often have an easier time recognizing their need for God than the rich do. But poverty of spirit is the gateway drug that leads to all the other Beatitudes it's the slippery slope either that or it's the stumbling block that trips people up because they don't want to admit they don't want to admit that they need help they don't want to depend on grace but poverty of spirit is where it all begins there is no other on ramp if you want to enter the kingdom if you want god's grace to explode in your life if you want to become a new person with a new heart and have god's spirit within you you have to get in touch with your spiritual poverty You have to come before God empty-handed, desperate to receive, desperate for grace and forgiveness and help. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The poor in spirit confess their sins. Those who mourn grieve their sins. They grieve the harm that their sins cause others. They grieve the evil and injustice in the world, and they feel it in their bones. Jesus wept. Jesus wept over the sins of others. He wept over the consequences of death. He wept over a city that refused to repent or recognize that he was their salvation. When we mourn our sin, it loses its power over us. It becomes less attractive to us. When we mourn evil in the world, we become personally involved in its restoration. Esau Macaulay says, to mourn is to care. It's an act of rebellion against one's own sins and the sins of the world. We cannot privilege apathy. Mourning is the intuition that things are not right, but something better is possible. When we mourn, we become vulnerable. Some of us will do just about anything to avoid becoming vulnerable. But what's the alternative? Apathy? Cynicism? Escapism? Hardened hearts? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn their sins will receive God's pardon and experience God's kindness. They will know that God loves them in spite of their flaws and failures. Those who mourn will see in Jesus' tears a God who is deeply troubled by evil and who will do whatever it takes to destroy it and set creation free. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Secretariat was meek. A disciplined army is meek. A linebacker who doesn't jump off sides before rushing the quarterback is meek. Meekness comes from having an accurate assessment of oneself. It comes from being poor in spirit and grieving our sin. Meek people are gentle, they're humble, they're sensitive, they're patient with others when they fail because they're in touch with how often they themselves fail. The meek are teachable. They're eager to be shown the right way. Meek people are a delight to be around. They're not entitled. They don't sulk when things don't go their way. They don't stand on their rights. They're not very demanding. They don't berate you. Instead of getting revenge, meek people trust in God's justice. The meek will inherit the earth, Jesus says. Probably because they're the only ones God can trust not to exploit it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Those who genuinely grieve their sin long to be made whole. Those who truly mourn the world's brokenness long for it to be mended. I think a lot of Christians have come to view brokenness as a virtue probably because it's the opposite of arrogance and self-promotion. But I'm not so sure that brokenness is a virtue. I think brokenness is a means to an end. It is the means to the end of becoming more like Jesus. It's not enough to confess your weaknesses or to confess your neediness or to mourn your sin or to lament what's wrong with the world. We have to long for things to be made right in our hearts, in our relationships, in society. Martin Luther King, Jr. hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And you knew it. Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Dorothy Day and Mother Teresa hungered and thirsted for righteousness. They didn't just mourn the way things were. They ached in their bones. And they prayed and they partnered with God to bring his heavenly kingdom into the here and now. I wonder if this beatitude is somewhat lost in us because we rarely have ever experienced true hunger or true thirst. But imagine you're in the ancient Near East and you're traveling by foot through the high desert. And maybe you're on a section of road where the wells are 20 miles apart. And your water bag is empty. And the wind kicks up and you begin to walk backwards, covering your face so that that fine desert sand doesn't coat your nostrils or your mouth or your lungs. And the sun is high and it's beating down on you and there's five miles to go before the next well. That's thirst. Blessed is the one who longs for things to be made right. Who hungers for wholeness and thirsts for justice for they shall be filled because God is always at work pulling down strongholds and setting things to rights because one day Jesus will make all things new and justice will flow like rivers and righteousness like a never failing stream blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy it makes sense that the poor in spirit those who mourn their sin, the meek would be merciful because they depend on God's mercy every day They know what it's like to be in need. The Hebrew word for mercy is the same as the Hebrew word for womb. Isn't that interesting? Think of the relationship between a mother and the child in her womb. To have mercy is to enter into solidarity with and take responsibility for a person who's needy or hurting. The world teaches us to pull away from needy people, to step back from messy situations, to insulate ourselves from pain and calamity. I think of the show Seinfeld. Every time one of Jerry's friends is in a pickle, he puts his hands up, steps back, and says, good luck with all that. But mercy moves toward those in pain. Mercy suffers with those who suffer. The merciful are moved by compassion to get personally involved, to walk with someone through the sewers of their life. This is the natural byproduct of worshiping a God who puts on flesh and moves into the neighborhood, who bears our sins and our sorrows, who becomes poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Religious people often blame the poor. And the needy for their problems. Jesus' followers look into the faces of the poor and see their own reflection. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus frequently called the Pharisees hypocrites because they looked good on the outside, but on the inside their hearts were far from God. By contrast, the pure in heart have integrity. The outside matches the inside. They're one person. In their relationships, there's no guile, there's no deceit, no attempt to manage other people's perceptions of them. Their motives are pure. Ted Lasso is pure in heart. When we're in middle school, we're figuring out who we are. We often try out different identities throughout the day. Some of us left middle school a long time ago, but we're still trying on identities. We're still trying to figure out what version of ourselves people like best. The pure in heart never worry about this. And that's because they live before an audience of one. Their goal is to please God and bring joy to his heart since he's brought so much joy to theirs. So they're set free from that arduous task of trying to please people, trying to guess what people like. They're set free from the temptation to perform. They're comfortable in their own skin because they know that God loves them unconditionally. The pure at heart can see God because they aren't obsessed with managing what other people see. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness long to see enmity and divisions cease. The pure in heart long to see the world become whole, become integrated, become one. This is not always easy. In fact, peacemaking can be painful and costly. It's hard to admit when you've hurt someone. It's hard to forgive someone who's hurt you. It's hard to confront someone about the pain that they've caused you. I think sometimes we're so eager to make peace that we settle for fake peace. We avoid conflict. We sweep it under the rug and move on before any real healing has had a chance to take place. But there is no peace without truth. There is no peace without confession, repentance, reparations, and forgiveness. This is true in our personal lives, and it's true between peoples and between nations. I'm reminded of King Théoden and *The Lord of the Rings*. His kingdom has suffered tremendously at the hands of the orcs. The wizard Saruman, who is behind the attacks, tries to make peace with Théoden, but Théoden says, "We shall have peace. We shall have peace when you answer for the burning of the Westfold." And the children that lie dead there, we shall have peace when the lives of the soldiers whose bodies were hewn, even as they died against the gates of the Hornburg, are avenged. Then we shall have peace. There is no peace without repentance, without acknowledgement of wrong. There is no peace without reparations. If you've ever tried to broker peace as a third party, you know how difficult and painful that can be. Listening to people who are embroiled in conflict, striving to rid yourself of all prejudice and understand both sides. Maybe you know the sadness of watching people refuse to make peace. Counselors and therapists know this all too well. Another kind of peacemaking is sharing the gospel. Inviting people to experience peace with God. And this too is risky. This too makes us vulnerable. But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. Those who seek to reconcile bear a striking resemblance to their father in heaven. Who sent his son to make us one with himself and with one another through his death on the cross? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some people refuse peace, some people would rather impose their will on others than have a relationship with them, some people would rather be right than have a right relationship. Persecution is a result of two things pride and irreconcilable value systems. Which means that religious people are just as prone to persecuting others as anyone else, and they often do. Those who live out the values of Jesus' kingdom are on a collision course with other kingdoms. While our persecutions nowadays might be mild, we should not be surprised when we're misunderstood labeled or dismissed this doesn't mean we go out looking for persecution we are looking for peace but when we take it on the chin we don't retaliate we don't sulk we don't lick our wounds we don't grin and bear it we don't pretend to like it we don't cheer on karma what do we do we rejoice we leap for joy why because great is our reward in heaven Because we're in good company, that's exactly what happened to the prophets and to Jesus. Because persecution is like a certificate of authenticity for our faith. It means that Jesus is more precious to us than worldly acceptance or comfort. It means that others cannot deter us from doing God's will. Jesus is showing us a new way to be human. He's showing us what a truly blessed life looks like. And it has less to do with our circumstances, has less to do with our comfort, health, or wealth, and more to do with putting ourselves in a posture in which we can receive from a gracious God. Those who are truly blessed or humble, they don't have an exaggerated view of themselves. They allow themselves to feel They allow themselves to ache, to hunger and thirst for a better world. God's grace and mercy flow through them onto others. Their lives are integrated and whole because they live before an audience of one. Their lives are suffused with purpose as they seek to be agents of peace and reconciliation. They are hungry for justice and willing to take it on the chin if it comes to it. They have firm centers and soft edges. And it all flows from the electrifying experience of God's grace. I can't believe Jesus loves me. Jesus doesn't just tell us a whole new way of being human. He shows us. Jesus is the Beatitudes. Henry Nouwen captures it well, and I'll paraphrase, but he says, Jesus, the blessed one, is poor. He freely chooses powerlessness over power, vulnerability over defensiveness, dependency over self-sufficiency. As Paul writes, he did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but he emptied himself, took on our humanity, and became our servant. Jesus, the blessed one, mourns. He mourns at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He mourns when he looks over the city of Jerusalem, soon to be destroyed. He mourns all of the losses and devastations that fill the human heart with pain. He grieves with those who grieve. Jesus, the blessed one, is meek. Even though he speaks with great fervor and biting criticism against all forms of hypocrisy. And he's not afraid to attack deception, vanity, manipulation, and oppression. His heart is a gentle heart. He will not break a crushed reed or snuff a faltering wick. He responds to people's suffering. He heals their wounds. He offers courage to the faint-hearted. Jesus is a soft place to land. Jesus, the blessed one, hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He abhors injustice. He resists those who oppress and exploit. His whole being yearns for people to treat one another with equity. Jesus, the blessed one, is merciful. He never looks down on us. He became one of us so that he can sympathize with our weaknesses and understand our temptations. Jesus, the blessed one, is pure in heart. He only does the Father's will. Even when it costs him his life, there are no divisions in his heart, no mixed motives, no secret intentions. His complete inner unity flows from his unity with the Father. Jesus, the blessed one, is a peacemaker. He seeks the world's shalom and brings together those who are far and those who are near. Jesus, the blessed one, is persecuted because of righteousness. He came into the world and his people received him not. His very presence in the world was a threat to the established order and a source of constant irritation to those who consider themselves the true rulers of the world. Jesus is blessed. Jesus is beautiful. He shows us how to be human. He shows us how to be fully alive. To the relativist, the Beatitudes sound ridiculous. Why would anyone surrender so much power and control over their lives? To the legalist, they sound impossible and absurd. How could anyone live this out consistently? But to the one who has become enraptured by Jesus... No other life is desirable. To imitate him is no duty. It's a privilege. The Beatitudes describe the life I want to live because they describe Jesus. And Jesus is beautiful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending us your son in the flesh where we could see him and touch him and hear his voice. You sent him not just to die in our place, but to show us what it looks like to live in the grip of your grace. To live in the security of your perfect love. So we pray that Jesus would become more and more real to us this week. More and more attractive to us. So that all other visions of what it means to be human would pale in comparison to his. We pray for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to bring humility, to show us our poverty so that we will come running to you like children, desperate to receive what you are so ready to give. And we pray that your beautiful life would unfold in our own for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.